Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. Okay, a very good morning, afternoon, or evening to all of you listeners here on Behavioral Science Uncovered. It's great to have you tuning in to today's podcast, which will be centered on whether individuals have preferences for telling the truth. My name is Matthew Henderson, and I'll be your host today. I'm fortunate enough to be joined today by Johannes Abler of Oxford University and Daniela Nocenso of Nottingham University. It's a pleasure to have you both here on the podcast this morning. Thank you very much for giving your time to both myself and to our listeners today. Thank you. Thank you. Turning now to your paper, Preferences for Truth-Telling. For those listeners who haven't yet read your paper, well, firstly, you should go away and read the paper. It's great. But can you briefly summarize what it's all about? Yeah, so the main idea of the paper is to try to understand how individuals report private information and, uh, and you know, the behavioral patterns that emerge in this type of situations and uh, the motivation that uh, underlie this type of behaviors. So the standard economic theory would predict that uh, reports of private information follow on, on profit maximization. So individuals would report whatever is most convenient for their own self-interest. And in many applications, this often means that uh, reports will deviate from the truth. So individuals will misreport their private information. But in contrast to this prediction, like we've seen in recent years, uh, accumulating quite a lot of evidence that shows that actually there seems to be quite a lot of uh, truth-telling when uh, individuals are asked to report information that they only themselves know in settings where they cannot be monitored or found to tell, tell a lie. So the starting point of the paper really was the observation of uh, this contrast between standard theory and empirical evidence. And uh, we then decided to do three things uh, in this topic. So the first thing is sort of consolidate all this evidence that was scattered around uh, really a, literally a hundred of uh, you know, empirical studies. Most of these were experimental studies. And uh, so we consolidated this evidence by conducting a meta-study, a meta-analysis of this data, trying to reconstruct the stylized uh, fact that uh, can describe or characterize truth-telling behavior. So how do people typically behave in these type of situations? What are the behavioral regularities that emerge? The second thing we did is trying to explain these regularities. So we uh, used theory uh, and uh, we constructed and formalized a series of explanations that have been offered in terms of truth-telling behavior and derived predictions about how these different models uh, predicted about uh, behavior in these situations. And the third step was to test or compare the empirical evidence uh, with uh, the theoretical predictions. And so for that, we used partly the data from the meta-study and partly new experiments that we designed to test specific predictions made by specific models. And so with this sort of uh, different angles or approaches to the problem, uh, our main result is that uh, truth-telling behavior can be explained. First of all, there is a lot of truth-telling behavior, much more than what standard economic theory would, would predict. And second, uh, sort of the main behavioral forces that drive uh, truth-telling behavior are, on the one hand, an intrinsic preference for telling the truth. So it's like uh, there's a cost associated, an intrinsic cost associated with misreporting 
information, which you know is false. And the second false instead is a reputational false. So you care about uh, not being perceived as a liar. And so um, this is another powerful motivation that keeps you telling the truth. So I guess the, the first thing for our listeners to note is that um, some of these results you described, such as people not lying maximally, you can find some of these results on the website, preferencesfortruthtelling.com. So our listeners can go away. There are some lovely data visualizations which have been drawn up, which kind of uh, demonstrate some of the author's results. So that's something that I, uh, I highly advise you go away and do, especially if you don't have time to kind of engage with the full paper. So to, to kind of go from the beginning, you said that there were irregularities that were spotted in the literature. And so I'm just thinking about now the sort of creative process that goes into writing a paper. I suppose the nature of creativity is such that it comes in unpredictable leaps and bounds, and it's not necessarily there on demand, which I guess is one of the reasons why prospective PhD students need to write a research proposal before being selected for their course. So I'm wondering kind of really where you source the ideas for the paper and how what your creative process looked like in general in the beginning stages of this paper? So looking at this lying literature, at the beginning there were quite a lot of experimental papers, often using this die rolling paradigm that was introduced by was Fischbacher and Franziska Fermi-Hoysi. So it's a very simple experiment, which we also use, where people roll a die in private, and then they report whatever they rolled, and then the experimenter pays them whatever they report. So they, you can make more money if you report a six, even though you didn't roll perhaps a six. So there's a chance of lying here. And we can indirectly infer whether people lied by looking at the distribution. And so this experiment has been used quite around the world, and that forms the base for the meta-study. But many of these papers didn't really use theory or didn't really think about general ways how to explain behavior. They document behavior, and this is very important papers, and we learn a lot from them. But the starting point to our project was to say, can we write down a utility function in technical terms or in more general terms? What drives behavior in these settings? And then it was really not a straightforward way, but sort of saying, oh, well, we could, let's write down some models. What could be an explanation? And then look at, compare those models to the data. But I totally agree with what you say about creativity, that this research project, much like probably almost all research projects, wasn't very linear in a way, is that you start in one way, and then you turn a little bit and you go in a different way. And that's how then the final product develops, the final paper develops. I suppose when it comes to spotting the existing holes in the literature, looking at this FFH paradigm that you mentioned, I'm wondering at what point in this research process did it become collaborative? So throughout my educational journey, I've necessarily had to author all of my research projects by myself because, you know, they, they have a word for undergraduates or master's students who collaborate with others when they're writing their dissertations, and it's called cheating. <laughs> so I'm very curious about the origins of your uh, collaborative research process. So throughout the roadmap you gave me of uh, conducting the meta-study, uh, providing theoretical reasons, writing down the utility function, and then doing your own experimental tests. Uh, at what point did you get together with each other and with your co-author, Colin Raymond? And also, do you have any tips on how to form successful uh, co-authorships in general? Yeah, so I, I, at the beginning, I worked on this by myself, on this broad question about what drives behavior. But then I did have some experiments and some model, but it didn't really go anywhere. And now I knew I wanted to change course and sort of broaden it up. And then I asked Daniela, whom I knew from Nottingham, I used to work in Nottingham, I, and I asked Colin, who was in Oxford back then, and is now in the States again, 
whether we could join forces. And that really changed the entire project. The project changed quite a lot. I think the only thing that remained from the original core project was the overall research question, but how we addressed it is very much came out of the collaboration of the three of us. How we choose co-authors is, is really difficult. I mean, I knew Daniela and Colin both personally. I think Daniela and Colin didn't know each other, so they had to trust me. But I think it worked out very, very well. Actually, I think Daniela and Colin never met in person, only via Skype, before we submitted the paper. So like oh, over wow. for one and a half years or two years, I think they never met in real life. It's a bit like oh, during okay. the lockdown, really. <laughs> we we met the day before receiving a revised and there is a met from Econometric. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I suppose you're very ready for the post-COVID world we're going to find ourselves in. Yeah. So you're kind of one, one step ahead there. I think lots of researchers work remotely because, um, I mean, some people have co-authors locally, but every, everybody else has to work remotely anyway. And then people move around. And even if you start local collaborations and people move away. And then once you've established a co-authorship, like Daniela and me with several projects, and you see that it works quite well, then even if someone moves away, then you want to continue that. Yeah, so the lockdown hasn't changed my research life very much. It has changed quite a lot of things in my life otherwise, yes. Um, yeah, I think another aspect about the co-authorship, I think complementarities are quite important. And, uh, you know, for example, in this case, Colin is much more theory-oriented, so clearly was a major force in developing the theories. And so I have more expertise in experimental design. So it's, um, and Johannes as well, it, that's also quite important, trying to find the different yeah, strengths that, uh, of course, can bring the paper to another level than, than if you could do it yourself. But yeah, otherwise, it's quite difficult to find what, you know, to know exactly whether it, someone will be a good co-author if you don't know them personally. So it's very hard to tell. You were talking about these complementarities. Johannes, I know you've written previous papers on truth-telling, and Daniela, I see you've authored several papers on identifying social norms, peer effects, uh, and social comparison modeling, and these elements also feature in this paper. So along with Colin Raymond, who you mentioned is a more of a theorist, how did you divide tasks among yourselves according to these research uh, specialisms? Yeah, I mean, quite natural in the sense of what we had most expertise on prior, but uh, although it's been a very collaborative project, I have to say, but, you know, Colin was the main, the driving force behind uh, the theory part. I took more the lead on the experimental part, Johannes on the meta-analysis, so that's how, more or less, how we started uh, uh, working on the initial phase of the paper. But uh, after that, I think there was lots of collaboration that partly because of the nature of the, pro the project, you know, the, the experiments were designed based on the theory results. The theory analysis was based partly on what we knew from the meta-analysis. So there's, uh, of course, lots of overlaps in the three components of the paper. And, you know, all the writing, uh, presentations and everything has been very collaborative. So, yeah, probably, as, yeah, one of the most collaborative projects that I took part in. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's sort of, there was nobody did anything. Any part of the paper wasn't done by one, just one person. I think to some extent we all worked on all of them, and then someone took the lead in some directions. It was very. I think it worked quite well in this paper. It doesn't always work quite well. No. Um, partly because of the project, partly because of the people, but I think this one worked out quite nicely. Since you talked about the lockdown, I think sort of research, being a PhD student or professor can often be very lonely because you sit in your office for hours, for weeks, for months, 
And I think working with others together makes it a little bit less lonely. So even if they're not in the same country, but it does make it less lonely. Yeah, I'm sure. I wonder actually how um, th- does does working with others also mean that you're perhaps able to strike a better work-life balance? So, you know, I mean, I've, I've recently heard of some faculties that will shut off the Wi-Fi in, in their department after 11 p.m. to get researchers to take a break. And I feel as though, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe sometimes if you're working as a bit of a one-man army, you know, you can uh, consider the counterfactual, oh, what if I just stared at that proof for another 20 minutes? So did you find that you could help each other to strike a better balance in research? What I see mostly is that co-author papers just become bigger. I mean, this paper is 150 pages long and it has 2,000 people in our lab experiments, has 60 pages of proofs, is perhaps too big for one person to do. But in a sense, being three of us, instead of just saying, oh, here's a 20 page paper, well, we could take it easy. I think we just expanded it. I think that's, and because the move in, in economics or part, partly the move is towards these bigger projects, which then almost necessitate um, having more co-authors or more RAs or in, in general, a bigger team. Indeed, uh, I feel your, your uh, online appendix is perhaps twice the length of the main body of your text. <laughs> and yeah. so I'm, I'm also wondering an interesting angle is at what point do you kind of decide that your paper's done? At what point do you say, I think this is good enough for publication because I feel as though since, I guess the nature of research is that you're your own boss and so you decide when, when the delivery date is. So how, how did you go about working out that, okay, we've tested a large enough set of models now and um, the paper's ready for publication? Yeah, when we didn't have the strength to read the appendix anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think if we worked a lot on, uh, you know, for quite a long time on the first draft, I think from the moment where we sort of sat all together to start the paper to the submission is past either one and a half or two years even. So it took uh, quite a long time to put it together. And um, it kept uh, changing and expanding partly results of presentations. So, you know, we had some preliminary results, maybe from a subset of experiments, the meta-analysis and so on. And we were going around presenting it at various places. We presented this paper to many places actually. And, um, you know, presentations, sometimes you get suggestions or why don't you think about this type of model? this type of design more rarely. There's lots of suggestions about models. So we're going back, work out the predictions for one more model, perhaps design new experiments to test it and so on. And so it kept going on like this until after a bit you start getting always the same comments or you know, you, you see that all the comments you receive somehow you have addressed uh, in some part of the paper. And then more or less when you when we realize, you know, this is, this is probably done. Yeah, this was sort of a, a funny project in this respect, because normally you have one model and say, well, if you think about lab experimental research, you have one model and one lab experiment. And so the, there's a clear bound to the paper. You do the model, you do the, the experiment, and then that's it. Here suddenly, because the paper grew into, oh, we have 10 models, or now we have 15 models. And wow. suddenly we were able to see, oh, how about we just write down all the models that people have suggested and really cover everything. And then obviously then I think in the end we had like 24 models that then becomes sort of pushes the, the project to become bigger. But yeah, but it's, yeah, it, de- it did grow over time. In the end, I think we stopped when the to-do list was empty. I think we didn't really have anything left. Well, yeah, I suppose in the, in the words of Nelson Mandela, it always seems impossible until it's done. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the path to publication. So once you decided you'd exhausted all of these avenues, like you say, you ticked off the to-do list. How did you approach the task of selling the paper to journals and how did it change as a result of the peer review process? I think this is something that uh, people like myself who haven't published in a journal, um, it it all seems a bit ambiguous. uh, We haven't engaged in it. So how did that kind of back and forth look? I think we were lucky that we got accepted by the first journal that we send it to. Normally you get rejected a couple of times and then at some point the paper is somewhere accepted and here it worked out in the first instance. We did work quite a lot in the revision. We got very long reports. I think we had five reports plus the editor. They were all positive, so we got five revise and resubmits, but they all had quite a lot of comments, partly because the paper was so bloody long. So uh, so that's not, not, not very surprising in that sense. I think in the peer review process, the biggest change that was to the structure of the paper, it did read a little bit like three separate papers at the beginning. Mm. And then we spent quite a lot of time to integrate it. We sort of generalized the theory so that it now reads much more like one common project, which wasn't really there yet at the beginning. We also added this website that you mentioned, which took quite a lot of time, which also wasn't really requested by the journal. But we thought it would be nice to to open up the data that we have or the time that we spend on the meta study. Can we sort of spend some more time on it and make these results easily accessible so that people don't have to read 150 pages? They can look at the website, play around with it, and um, that's much nicer. So that was also part of the revision process that came very late in the overall process of the paper. You mentioned the selling strategy, sort of it's, I think, we were uh, we were sort of worried, or we were particularly careful about two things when we were sort of writing the paper. One is, you know, the meta study is a danger that when you get perceived as someone who just does a little bit of housekeeping, you know, it puts in order the literature and uh, summarizes it nicely, very useful. But when you aim at the top journal, we were a bit worried that maybe this wouldn't be enough. So we were, yeah, we, we were quite careful in trying to sort of minimize that fear and try to make it more like this there's more to it than just a, a meta study and uh, the other thing was we the, the all the experiments the theory the meta-analysis uh, speak to a specific uh, setup the Fischbacher for me how's it set up that uh, Johannes mentioned earlier so the other thing we were worried about is that this sounds a little bit too lovesy and to you know to focus on an aspect uh, which is a very good test bed for uh, you know studying uh, transmission of uh, reporting of private information, but if it's just perceived as being a love game and all that we are doing speaks to that love game, so that could be a bit dangerous. And so that was the other, uh, uh, that especially in the introduction, we tried to explain how, you know, you can go from this uh, stylized setting to lots of other interesting settings that uh, interest economists uh, that are not necessarily just interested in behavior in the lab. Okay. And would you say those are some of the biggest mistakes that you see other researchers in behavioral science make, either mischaracterizing their paper, as it would have been if you'd um, only emphasized your uh, meta-analysis and not your rigorous theoretical and empirical work? I think it's always, it's always in economics, it's always a little bit of a struggle to find exactly the best way to describe, or as you say, you frame or sell the paper. 
in a sense, the data is what it is, but the interpretation is a little bit up to is a little bit up to the authors and also to guide the researchers. And I think that in general, I think you want to, when in economics, there's a payoff to try to sell or frame the paper in more general terms. So if there's a larger target group, so in our case, you, a smaller target group would be just experimental economists, for example. But if we can write a paper that is interesting to a broader set of, of economists, I think that is always that's very useful for the chance of publication. But then sometimes people overstate and make a very general claim, which is not backed up by the data. So in a sense, it's a question of how general can you make your data appear or how general is the question that you that you address. And obviously, that's not a process that starts after you've collected the data. That's a process that starts at the beginning already. What is the question that you start out with? How general is that? How important is that question? So it's sort of a, but it's something that you come back to, not just at the very beginning, but also when you write down the paper. Yeah, and I, I, I think, you know, I, I, in the papers I refer to, for example, I see people doing sort of overstating and understating at the same thing in different papers, typically. So, you know, sometimes you have papers that make claims that, uh, you know, that they, they present the paper as if it's speaking to situations that, I don't know, I don't really agree with. And it seems that uh, it would, the paper would be much better off if it was targeted to a smaller audience, more you know, technical, specialized. And on the other hand, sometimes I see papers where I say, oh, yeah, this could have been sold much better if, uh, you know, they would have made this connection with this literature or, but I agree with you, Anna, that it's something that is really important to think about at the beginning of, of the research process. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's fine. You just write a paper that is uh, targeted to experimental economics. I, mean, I have quite a few, you know, a couple of methodological papers that, you know, I say this is interesting for the for experimental economists. So I know that I target it to that and then that's it. But sometimes you might want to write a paper that is of interest to more than experimental economy, but then you really have to think about it at the beginning when, when you're thinking about the research questions. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it, it, it does speak to that the novelty utility trade-off sometimes when you want your research to be specific enough that it's novel, but general enough that it's useful. So I think, and, and perhaps the, um, the notion that you represented a lot of your results online in the very user-friendly preferencesfortruthtelling.com website, do you think um, in, in terms of your audience, that might have helped you expand the receipt of your research beyond just the academic community? So, for example, do you think websites such as the one you've set up could help you make a case to organizations such as the Behavioral Insights Team in London or the Nudge Unit in terms of getting some of your academic work enacted into a practical policy? And I guess I, I wouldn't normally um, ask these sort of questions had it been just the results of one lab experiment. But since you do consider, you know, almost 100 studies, these results are pretty general and pretty robust. And so there's definitely a place in policy for them, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is, this was an insight that we had only quite late in the process, actually, after we submitted the paper. Is what is the best way to transmit the knowledge that we learned from our work? And in research, we always think, oh, yeah, this must fit into a PDF file, 30 pages, perhaps 100 pages, but whatever, it has to be written down in a PDF. And that's the way how we communicate. But that is obviously very constraining because in particular, when you look at the meta study and when you look at the website, I think it's a much, much better way to transmit the, the lessons or the, the insights from the meta study through these interactive graphs that we have on the website compared to the static graphs that we have in the paper or even the text that we have in the paper. So I think if we hadn't been that constrained, and it was our mistake, well, not mistake, but that's sort of the tradition. I think if we start from a blank slate, I think we would never have considered a PDF. We would always have started with a website. Obviously, yes, you need a PDF to put it in a journal, 
But in a sense, we could have had the PDF if we had started with this sort of from the get-go. Start with the PDF as a brief summary almost, and then say the main chunk is the website, and we almost submit the website to the journal. Obviously, that's not possible at the moment, but I think liberating in this way, I think this opens the eye to, to other ways of communicating and perhaps better ways of communicating insights. Johannes, Daniela, thank you so much for sharing the details on the um, thought processes and collaborative efforts that led you to produce this very thorough and insightful paper. It's been most valuable to both myself and to all our listeners. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode of Behavioral Science Uncovered. Please stay tuned for more conversations on behavioral science and how it's made. This is your host, Matthew Henderson, signing off.